Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, There is no justice to be found in the United States. That's Pink Floyd's Roger Waters weighing in on the continued deplorable imprisonment of political journalist Julian Assange as the U.S. extradition appeal proceedings continue in the U.K. This is an absolute nonsense that this man has been locked up for a single day, whether it's in the Ecuadorian embassy or in Belmarsh. Um, this, is, this is one of the most valuable human beings that we, the human race, have amongst us. He is deeply, deeply important to the potential for this race to survive on this planet, in my view. That is why Julian Assange is in prison, because he's interfering with their cunning plan to steal the planet, sort of rape it to death and then destroy it. It is a disgusting miscarriage of justice. Look at Guantanamo Bay. Ask Shaka Arma, my friend. Ask anybody who has been in the hands of the US judiciary um, in, at any point, possibly since the Second World War, with whom they did not uh, agree. And you will find that there's no justice to be found in the United States. I'm so angry and I'm so, and I'm so disgusted with the United Kingdom. I did a, a radio program last night and John Shipton was on it and he was extremely eloquent. And I asked him how he, how he manages his grief. And, and he was absolutely, he was so moving to listen to. He says, well, he, he puts it to one side as it goes through his life and his life is entirely devoted to the freeing of his son so he can go home to his wife and children. And John says that late at night, he may retreat into his melancholy. And I felt my heart lurch in my chest as I listened to this man saying this and that. And I felt his melancholy hit me like a hammer blow on my chest. We are not going on it anywhere at all. And our voice is going to get louder and louder and louder until Julian Assange is set free. I can promise you that. And next in our Arts Express in the News episode this week, Professor Dennis Bro, our Paris correspondent, was just a featured guest on Lee Camp's Redacted Tonight TV show and headlined, Why TV is Failing Americans says Camp, today I speak with one of the few TV and movie critics willing to actually dig deeper than just whether the acting was good or whether the new Disney Plus show had enough explosions to keep everyone's attention, and whether our critical entertainment actually says anything important or just distracts from our reality. Here is that excerpted discussion from the show. Welcome to Redacted Tonight VIP. I'm Lee Camp. Today I speak with one of the few TV and movie critics willing to actually dig deeper than just whether the acting was good or whether a new Disney Plus show had enough explosions to keep everyone's attention. Dennis Bro is willing to dig down to the bones and critique whether our cultural entertainment actually says anything important or just distracts us from our reality. He has a new book out titled Diary of a Digital Plague Year, Corona Culture, Serial TV, and the Rise of the Streaming Services. Here's my conversation with Dennis Bro. Hi, Dennis. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Lee. Good to be here. So you have a new book out, Diary of a Digital Plague Year, Corona Culture, Serial TV, and the Rise of the Streaming Services. It's excellent. I'm really enjoying it. And I especially loved that foreword by somebody named Lee Camp. Not sure that's a real name. It sounds kind of weird, but excellent foreword. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's made up, but yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, I want to dig into some of the some of the television shows you critique. Uh, basically, the ones I've actually seen some of. So I'm, I'm going to get more into those. But let's start out with Space Force. This is a comedy starring Steve Carell. It's kind of the Office meets American military force in outer space, and it had a chance to be kind of a new Doctor Strangelove or a Catch-22, a, a book that was pivotal in my, in my life. You know, it could have been cutting satire, tearing apart the insanity of our military-industrial complex, but you believe it didn't succeed at that? No, I don't think it did that at all. And, um, yeah, I think my, my, uh, my headline was what could have been Doctor Strangelove is instead McHale's Navy. And uh, that's really kind of what it is. They think they're being really sophisticated. Unfortunately, they're not being really funny. Um, and uh, with Steve Carell, it's always possible, you know, because The Office really was a good show and really did have something to say about corporate culture. But this is really overly cautious about something that they really could have done a wonderful satire on, you know, the Space Force, the idiotic, you know, idea of, you know, of, of just launching uh, everything in space, of blocking, you know, every other country and, from being in space, but and, they didn't do that. And how much of that do you think is, is due to the fact that they were trying to placate the, the Pentagon, the CIA, whoever else, you know, looks at these scripts? Because, uh, you know, something you've probably come up against many times when you're watching these films and stuff is basically if they use any kind of military weaponry, vehicles, uh, uniforms, then they are working with the Pentagon. They certainly are. And also, um, if the Pentagon doesn't like what you're doing, you know, and, and it's all free. But if the Pentagon doesn't like what you're doing, then you have to go out and outfit everything. And that's very expensive. So you want to stay on their good side. There is, there are shots of the Pentagon, which means they probably have the approval, you know. And it's a really very mild view of what's a very nasty program, you know. It's about provoking um, a, a, a space race, you know, re-provoking another arms race in space. But also, it's idiotic because now you've got the uh, Russians, the Chinese the Indians, the Air, the Emirates, all going into space instead of what could have been a cooperative venture, you know? And so this doesn't, this doesn't talk about that. The Steve Carell character, General Nerd, or Nerd really is what he is, and that's kind of what they're, they're playing off of, really doesn't, um, you know, he's too nice mm -hmm. throughout the entire thing. And he, and it's too, um, it's too sympathetic to him without having that sort of edge that the office had with Vicky Gervais, you know, who really can be fairly savage and yeah. is often. But, yeah. Well, uh, so I want to move to, to another one that you said is a success. Uh, and I saw, I think, the entire first season, maybe Money Heist, which is, has been Net Netflix's most popular foreign language series. And it does seem to give viewers a new perspective on, on banks, uh, on stealing, and I mean new compared to the common heist movie. Uh, and, it, and it really does discuss kind of the immense inequality that is happening in Spain, but also in the U.S. and Britain and elsewhere. So you, you feel it did, it's doing a pretty good job of that. Well, especially in the first season, which was Spanish TV before Netflix bought it. Uh, since it's had to make some compromises with Netflix, but the first season's very, very good. And it was very, very popular. And the question was why, you know, and it's about this, uh, it's about this gang of thieves. I mean, you know, this is the heist, this is the heist show or heist film, you know, very venerable genre, but there's a couple of differences. One is they break into, uh, they break into the bank of Spain, not to steal money, but to print money. And so it throws the whole idea of printing money into question and asks, what is printing money? What is the crime of uh, uh, what is the crime of um, stealing money compared to the crime of printing money? And it's been a huge crime, and it sees it as a crime, you know. And throughout the show, you see these various people kind of turn and parts of the almost sort of 
you know, kind of post post Franco kind of fascist, uh, you know, police force that's pursuing these people inside sort of in, in, in a few of them sort of turn around because they begin to realize they might be on the wrong side, which is really quite interesting. But its yeah. popularity seems to come from the fact that throughout Europe and the world, this idea of quantitative easing is not read as giving people money. It's read as giving banks and corporations money and we don't get any of it. And this is a show about, well, why not? Why don't we get, why don't we have some of it ourselves, you know? Right, right. And, and as you mentioned, I, one thing I liked in the first season was unlike what I've seen on most American television, I'm not saying there's nothing out there, but it, it took the police and showed them to be incredibly flawed as the time goes on, almost more flawed than the criminal, quote unquote, criminals, the, the bank robbers, and really gives you uh, two sides of that story. So I thought it did an excellent job of that as well. Um, I want to, yes. before, before yeah, we run out of time, I want to get to your review of Hamilton, which has been a hugely successful musical for several years now, but it only recently, I think last year, came out on HBO. And I haven't seen much criticism that really does what, what I wanted, you know, reviewers to do, which is tear apart how Hamilton may be well-made and enjoyable to watch and all of those things, but it's mostly catnip for liberals who are simply thrilled to see roles played by people of color and see no need to dig deeper into a deeper uh, understanding of reality, understanding of our history. You know, almost every hero in Hamilton was a slave owner, with the exception of Hamilton himself, I think. And then they ultimately wrote a document called the Declaration of Independence that said all men are created equal, and it meant 6% of the population was white landowning yes. males. That was it. So they, when they said all men, they meant 6%. But here we are watching Hamilton and celebrating all of them because we've found black actors to play them, is, you know, is, all, is, is all we can say for that whole situation. So could you talk a little bit about uh, what, you, what you saw in Hamilton? Yeah, first of all, the whole thing of uh, when it was released, which was uh, last July 4th, so it has this sort of had this sort of patriotic sheen to it. The other thing is what is that it was released not in the theaters but online. So it's an attempt to grab, you know, for uh, the streamers, which are gaining more and more power and which are actually waging war against uh, the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is largely public television. So you have American privatized television trying to undercut global public television. And here was another example of it, the releasing of Hamilton on July 4th weekend so that people would stay home and watch Hamilton. And, you know, well, they couldn't really go to the theaters. This was during the lockdown. But the thing about it, yes, I mean, it's got some very dynamic scenes. You get to see lots of things. David Diggs is really amazing as Jefferson, you know, coming on in that second act. It's got also the, um, I mean, the, I thought the music was a little stale, but in fact, the, um, the, the lyrics really push what's possible on Broadway. And it really expands what's possible because it contains so much information. The problem though is, as you say, and you know, when I was reading I used Gerald Horn's book on the revolution and the fact that the revolution, in fact, was partly fought against blacks and Native Americans. And the British, you know, who are who are the villains in Hamilton, and, and they are villainous, uh, though, did offer the, uh, you know, did offer blacks and, and Native Americans, if they enlisted, they offered blacks freedom. Right. So, right. you know, uh, so... Here you have here you have these you know this sort of I guess you could call it whiteface you know um, it's become very popular this kind of casting and it really is a kind of liberal casting it's a liberal sort of whitewashing of what went down you know so that everybody leaves humming the songs and feeling really good about something that has nothing to do with the truth right you know? right and they 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 feel very good about racial equality in a time that did not have racial equality <laughs> yes exactly well and it's happening more and more you know you had um uh what was it uh bridgerton bridgerton has uh has you know this sort of uh black actors 
in uh, in England in the in the 18th century, and they're playing they're playing uh, the English aristocracy. So what on earth are you doing here? I mean, you know, okay, I guess you could say this is diversity, but it's also an utter lie. And wouldn't it be better to really sort of tell the truth and tell that and have the two perspectives, you know, rather than doing this kind of crazy casting, this crazy liberal casting, which mm -hmm. makes everyone feel better except I suppose uh, anybody who ha has a glimmer of what's actually going on, and well, then and it, you feel kind of repulsed. Before we run out of time, we have like one minute left. I, I, just, I just wanted to get to a broader uh, discussion real quick. You know, I think what you do is so rare, TV and movie critics, like, you know, willing to talk about the deeper issues such as capitalism and oppression are just not common. It's, you, you know, I think you and a few others are like unicorns. They'll, they'll get at the surface issues, such as whether having a space force is a good idea or something, but they won't get at the deeper issues, such as, you know, uh, capitalism and our American culture creating the need for this endless militarism and endless war that space force is a part of. And that's just one example. So why is that? Why is there so little criticism and commentary of the brand that you do? I think it's sort of easy to kind of ignore what are the real implications of what people are watching. So a lot of times when you see critics, they're sort of apologizing. For example, there's a there's a pretty good series called uh, The White Lotus, particularly the first episode, which is about the disparities between an upper class that goes on vacation in Hawaii and a captured, still colonized Hawaiian population. Well, somebody in the Times wrote, you know what this is about? This is about problems with vacationing. <laughs> That's how they saw it. You know, that's that that's that's the way they explained it. And when you start to explain things that way, you really sort of, you know, are you going to dilute the content or are you going to push it? I'll just give you another example. Ozark, you know, Ozark is a show that a lot of people really like. And the way I read Ozark is that it's about how the middle class, the American middle class is increasingly strapped now. There's a little sort of thing where, you know, the, the person who's torture, torturing them is a Mexican drug lord. OK, but if you substitute the corporate head for the Mexican drug lord, then you have the pressure that th that the middle class is under. And this is a show about that right. pressure, about how they have to be. The corporate term is adaptive, meaning they have to live several lives in order to keep up, in order to stay where they were. And I just want to conclude, this is a little bit of a thing. There was a, once once upon a time there was uh, in um, in uh, The Grapes of Wrath, there's a great scene where the, where the uh, John Ford's film from 1940, there's a great scene where the grandmother's up on top of the, uh, on top of the uh, truck as they're going uh, west. Mm -hmm. And um, the, uh, the grandmother said, uh, the grandmother says to the uh, to the wife, well, you know, you got to stop uh, treating me badly or I'm one of these days I'm going to die. And the wife says, you keep promising, Granny, but you never deliver the goods. <laughs> and that's capitalism. It keeps promising, but it doesn't anymore <laughs> deliver the goods. Well, well said, uh, Dennis. Uh, we unfortunately we got to about one fiftieth of your book, but the book again is Diary of a Digital Plague Gear: Corona Culture, Serial TV, and the Rise of Streaming Services. Everyone should check it out. And uh, thank you. Continue to do great work, Dennis. Thanks, Lee. Uh, you too. I really love you. I really love what you do. That's the show! I don't want to say goodbye, but we have to. But don't forget to check out the free exclusive content every single day at portable.tv. Just scroll down to the Redacted Tonight playlist. It's all there. Until next time, keep fighting. And coming up next on Arts Express, Chaplin was one of a kind. 
and we'll never know the real Chaplin any more than the real Shakespeare or Mozart. Jack Shalom critiques a new documentary about the screen legend whose personal childhood experience of working-class oppression and attempts in his films to overcome that oppression have resonated with millions and will be with us forever. Chaplin once said, all the adulation is not for me, it's for the little man. Thought anybody loved him? He never believed it. He was always acting. He didn't want people to know the real Charlie. Don't Hi, this is Jack Shalom. It's the 100th anniversary of Charlie Chaplin's first full-length feature, The Kid, and that's as good an excuse as any to celebrate all of his films. But who is Chaplin off-screen? A new documentary, The Real Chaplin, directed by Peter Middleton and James Spinney, purports to get to the bottom of the real Charlie Chaplin. And it's an understandable wish, but really, it's a bit of a fool's errand. Chaplin was one of a kind, and we'll never know the real Chaplin, any more than we'll know the real Shakespeare or the real Mozart. I'm reminded of the Borges story about Shakespeare called Everything and Nothing. Borges insists that Shakespeare could be everyone because he was no one. And Shakespeare had become instinctively adept at pretending to be somebody so that no one would suspect he was in fact nobody. So it is with Chaplin. The answer to who the real Chaplin or Shakespeare is, is in their work, because they were their work. Like Shakespeare, Chaplin in his later years went out to the country and lived the life of a bourgeois family man. But without their work, they were no longer who they were. They were shadows of themselves. What does it even mean to find the real person underneath? As if the work of a genius artist was something apart from who they are, could be dissected, centrifuged out, rather than it being a part of the artist's very essence? Well, the real Chaplin does cover its bases from the very beginning of the film, with a quote from the critic Max Eastman, who said that, Whichever Chaplin you meet, you will be fascinated by, because there are so many of them. Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, made in 1921, is as good a place as any to find out who Chaplin was. The story of an orphan boy abandoned by his parents who lives in a squalid attic apartment ends in a way that Chaplin's life did not. Chaplin had no savior as the kid played by Jackie Coogan in the movie gets. Chaplin was taken from his attic to the poorhouse and lived there when he was eight and nine years old. And Chaplin repeats that same trope later in modern times. This time the story has Paulette Goddard as an ashy-faced child, on the run from the city authorities who want to put her and her siblings into an orphanage after the parents have died. 
But again, the young kid gets a benefactor and escapes the clutches of the police. But in both of these Chaplin films, the kids are saved by the benevolence of someone not much better off than they were. Someone from their own class. Who else but the tramp played by Chaplin? Like a lucid dreamer re-engineering a bad dream into a good one, Chaplin reimagined through film his childhood into a better one with a built-in savior, imperfect as he may have been. But the tramp, of course, was being played by perhaps the highest paid at the time actor in America, Charles Chaplin. His paydays made him very rich at a fairly young age. In 1915, at age 26, after only two years in the film industry, he was making over $600,000 a year. But if Chaplin played the savior of the orphans in the film, who came to Chaplin's rescue? Well, that didn't come until later, and that was probably indirectly Fred Carno, the savvy vaudevillian with whom Chaplin got his teenage start and under whose tutelage Chaplin shined, becoming a standout in the well-thought-of company from early on. The real Chaplin has some excellent archival material on Carno, including an instruction guide for its players, teaching them in an illustrated detail how to perform some of the slapstick basics like taking a fall down a flight of stairs. Indeed, there are lots of archival highlights in the two-hour Showtime documentary, including an interview with an old street buddy of Chaplin's from his poverty-stricken youth, audio voiceovers from some of Chaplin's children, and footage from Lita Gray, Chaplin's second child bride, who tells us what a louse Chaplin was to her. There is some footage, too, of Chaplin at work, in particular, filming a crucial scene from City Lights, which required hundreds and hundreds of takes over the period of a year. However, that was also uncovered in an earlier documentary, the TV miniseries The Unknown Chaplin, which focused even more on Chaplin's behind-the-scenes working life. But still, these are worthwhile explorations into who Chaplin was and how he worked. Less successful, however, in the real Chaplin is that which surrounds the presentation of the archival material. There are a few recreations, quote-unquote, of historical events, including Chaplin testifying at HUAC hearings, that's the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee, and speaking at press conferences, and frankly, they're not done very well, and give an air of Channel 23 unexplained mysteries kind of television fare. They have some actor dressed up in a suit that Chaplin might have worn and shoot him from the back or from the neck down, and it's clear that it's not Chaplin. It's just distracting. Or worse, they swing the camera away from the Chaplin actor to someone else who suddenly becomes a prominent figure in what should be Chaplin's story. And honestly, the general narration and music do not provide much support for the archival materials either. The narration is read flatly and feels very generic without much insight, and the music is fairly insipid. As to Chaplin's political beliefs, while there is some discussion of them in the HUAC sections of the film, they're so ineptly staged that it detracts from the points they're trying to make. But the truth is that Chaplin's politics are right there in the films for anyone who wants to see them, and while not a deep political thinker, it cannot be denied that Chaplin's knowledge that stemmed from his personal childhood experiences of working-class oppression and the attempts in the films to overcome the effects of that oppression have resonated with millions and will be with us forever. Chaplin was particularly sharp about the hypocrisy of governments that on the one hand profess to be democratic, but on the other hand turn out to be tyrannical. That is why it is particularly puzzling that the real Chaplin leaves out any mention of one of Chaplin's most political films, A King in New York, which is a direct satire based on the House on American Activities Committee. It has one hilarious scene where the Ostrovian King Shadoff, played by Chaplin, is hauled before the House Committee on Un-American Activities for suspicion of being a communist, whereupon Chaplin accidentally turns on a fire hose that showers the committee members and scatters them in panic. So the film The Real Chaplin in itself does not find the real Chaplin, which is an illusory pursuit, as the Max Eastman quote at the beginning of the film suggests. And the analysis is heavy-handed and at times 
awkward, but Showtime's Real Chaplin does have a wealth of wonderful archival material in it. Video clips, photos, and oral histories that make it worth seeing. The opening montage of Chaplin imitators is worth the price of admission in itself. But if you want to find the real Chaplin, go back to modern times, the great dictator, Monsieur Verdoux, a king in New York, the circus, even the immigrant, and be prepared to encounter Charles Spencer Chaplin. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. music you've been listening to are the soundtracks for Modern Times, City Lights, and A Dog's Life. Across the morning sky Hi, this is Judy Collins on Arts Express, and today I'm telling you, first of all, have a great day, and be sure to remember Arts Express. This is Judy Collins, so cheers. Sad, deserted shore, your fickle friends are leaving. Ah, but then you And now on Arts Express, on the last show, we featured a conversation with Costa Rican U.S.-based filmmaker Allegra Pacheco, exploring in her documentary Salaryman, Japanese workers driven to mental breakdown and even suicide by their oppression and exploitation, and parallel with the labor uprising in this country, Striketober. And our guest this week is actor John Hawkes, who was so moved by the film that he stepped forward as executive producer, in no small part related to his own coming of age in Minnesota, the child of farmers who were subjected to the seizure of their land by the banks. Hawks, who has worked under Steven Spielberg in the biopic Lincoln, with Ridley Scott in American Gangster, and was Oscar-nominated as Best Supporting Actor Playing Teardrop, in the bleak Ozark poverty drama Winter's Bone, talks workers during this conversation, then and now, here and elsewhere, as in Salaryman, quote, The dignity of human work across the world is important to speak to, and I'm not sure where to begin. But as disparate as they are, there's a similarity of struggle. First, some scenes again from Salaryman, then John Hawkes. 
They go to the bar and they drink a lot. It seems like they're releasing their stress, but in fact, drinking too much is one of the big reasons why they're so stressed. I got depression because of the stress in my company. My company didn't allow me to take a leave. Unfortunately, last month I got fired. This photo is a photo of my medicine. I started taking this uh, medicine because I got depression in my job. So I'm taking three pills. One for my anxiety. The other one is for making me positive. Third one is for sleeping. I've never walked up on the street like uh, other salarymen. But I think if I kept walking in my company, someday I'm going to be one of them. When I first saw these men in suits just lying in the street, for a second, it looked like a murder scene, like a corporate murder. I saw something of myself in these men that reminded me of my work in New York. But I couldn't really place it because we're also so different. I'm an outsider. I'm a woman, creating chalk outlines around these men who are at their most vulnerable. In a way, who am I to make meaning of their situation? But it all felt so normalized. I had to call attention to what I was seeing. I couldn't just look away. Hello? Hello and welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Now, what led you to come on board as executive producer of Salaryman? Well, I'll give you the semi-long story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a moody little bar uh, in, 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 in uh, Hollywood since closed uh, called Cream's Hollywood Tavern. It wasn't trendy and no real music industry people there, but a really wonderful music scene was, was coming out of that place. There's a mm. bunch of really great songwriters wonderful men and women and, and bands and uh, kind of within that, that vacuum I heard a lot of wonderful I was hearing so much great music at that club and, and getting to play there a lot that I was I was doing macrobiotic listening for a couple of years all the music I heard was made within about five anything I consumed was made, made within about five miles of my home there were so many great people around a woman named Lissy came out of that scene she's terrific but there was also a lot of, of painters and, and filmmakers and photographers who were who were uh, hanging around uh, that group too and, and Allegra uh, Pacheco was one of them, and I always really loved her images as a photographer and her, her sensibility. And then uh, she left town. She went to New York and then ended up back in Costa Rica for a long time. So about ten years, me, I, I don't have email, and so we were kind of just uh, you know saying hellos and getting reports through friends uh, for quite a while. And then about gosh, maybe five years ago, uh, she came back through town and called. We had an afternoon together, and she showed me some of her salary man footage, and I was just forward. Uh, she said, I'm, I'm making this art project. I don't know that I'm a filmmaker, but I think I might have a, a movie that I'm making. And and I offered to help uh, in any way I could. And uh, for her, that was a small amount of money. And I, uh, I didn't expect an executive producer credit by any means, but I'm really uh, happy to have helped in some way. But she told me that what was, what was good, it was, I guess I was the first person to 
backup uh, enthusiasm with a, a financial stipend, and she said she found that in making this movie, what a lot of filmmakers find, I guess, is that the very the hard money to raise is the very first piece that you get. So uh, she said it really helped that I was that I, that I got her going, and, and, and other people came on board. But uh, yeah, I didn't do a great deal. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but I've, I've uh, championed it from from the start, from what I was watching her put together. So. And how do you view what's going on in Salary Man from your U.S. outsider's perspective? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because I feel I feel the more specific you can be when you're creating something, often the more universal your story becomes. And I think that Allegra was so specific that, that she did a really wonderful job in that respect. And so I guess Salary Man feels bigger than Japan, if you will, to me, uh, in the best way. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful study of, of, a, of a specific working culture, but I think it kind of throws light on modern work, um, how we relate to it, what we give to it, how it affects our bigger lives. I love that the first word you hear in the film is money. And uh, so I feel like it's, it's, it's an important thing to be part of, uh, to kind of maybe redefine how we how we view work. Um, I know that in traveling overseas, I've heard Europeans say that, you know, when you ask, that Americans ultimately, that we, we work, and in, in a lot of cultures, we, we work to live, whereas uh, other cultures who maybe have it figured out a little more, um, they work to live. We live to work, it seems, I guess. I got that confused. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's good that we, that we look at how we work in, in the modern world. I, I also just think the film is such a, a visceral trip. Uh, uh, Legata kind of puts the viewer really right in the middle of that world, a yeah. fascinating world. And I love James Eha's work, and, and, and uh, I think the soundtrack uh, really lend to that, to that experience as a viewer. And have you observed any reactions at the documentary LA Film Festival to the film and the issues raised in the film? I have not yet, and I have to say that um, it's boring, but I, I'm still kind of trying to be a good, a good global pandemic citizen. I'm, I'm uh, just trying to stop the spread. I haven't traveled, and so I haven't really gone to too many events here uh, uh, to be yeah. with people. So uh, so I, I was I was not there, and I haven't, I haven't really seen what people... Think about it. I'm, I'm interested to to uh, discern what the reaction will be. And do you identify in any way with those salarymen as an actor? You know, in a strange way, I do. We we have worked. <laughs> we have worked. Um, you know, some some difficult conditions, but but just mainly really horrific hours uh, along the way. I, I, uh, there's a, a movie um, called Pocket. I might be called, but I feel like that Haskell Wexler was involved. But it was it was studying uh, sleep and and, and uh, the effects of, of work on sleep. But uh, yeah, I and it's 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 it spoke to the idea that the American film industry might be one of the few in the world that's trying to get down to a twelve hour workday. Um, and that that came out some years ago, and I think it's it's people have been more aware of it because there there have been injuries and deaths around I think exhaustion. Uh, in the film industry, so you know, while I have the the, the wonderful joy of, of getting to, uh, it's a different experience every time, and it's not um, that that makes it great. I'm not doing the same thing every day as an actor, and also I'm not doing it um, you know 52 weeks a year, so uh, I get a chance to rest. But certainly, I, I feel. Also, I have to say, I just thought of this just as, as someone who has laid low through the global pandemic. Uh, you know, I think I think how much am I defined by, by my work? You know, of what use am I if, I, if I'm not if I'm not working? And uh, it's an interesting question to, to, to kind of think about. Uh, luckily, I've, I've always loved a lot of other things and. and in life, and so work has, has never really been the only thing I've been interested in. Now, speaking of those working conditions for actors, what are your thoughts about the death on the Alec Baldwin set? 
I don't know much about that, uh, honestly. Uh, I'd, I'd see the headline whip by, but I, yeah. I really know nothing. I heard there was there was a shooting, and and uh, yeah, I don't I don't wish to say uh, anything about. I, I don't know enough about it. I'm so sorry. And speaking of those working conditions for actors, what are your thoughts about the Hollywood workers' strike that's been going on there? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess it's simply put, pro union. Um, I, I would join. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm on the ranks, I guess, of, of the workers' side. And I wanted to ask you on the subject of workers struggling to survive. Looking back on Winter's Bone and your Academy Award-nominated performance as Teardrop. What are your thoughts about the same issues today of a country in economic crisis and the struggles to survive here, and as we saw with the salarymen? Well, that's interesting. Um, I guess it all kind of, it all, I mean, it, it seemed like the worlds couldn't be uh, more similar, and, and I guess there's no one, not a, there's not a 60-hour work week and a party with bosses, but but I do feel that yeah, the, the the dignity of of, of human work across the world is is, is important and, and and something to speak to. I, I'm not sure where to begin, but but I guess I would relate them that way, as, as disparate as they are. That there's similarity of, of struggle. And how do you feel as the son of a Minnesota farmer? How do you feel that has informed who you are and as an actor and the characters you choose to play? I think that that uh, growing up where I did, I I, I got a real um, really one channel on television when I was growing up on a black and white TV, and so I guess that kind of media wasn't really much my focus growing up. I was I was uh, I was interested in play with friends and, and also wandering alone in the woods and making my own nature programming and. Uh, <laughs> turning over rocks and finding, you know, insect species and identifying them and uh, <laughs> and reading a lot of books. It was a wonderful way to grow up in that way. Uh, and, and and I guess from the farm side of my family, I really saw uh, how hard people worked. It's very interesting. I just had a strange jolt that, in a weird way, the farmers I knew growing up were salarymen. My, my father, my uncle, my grandfather, I, they didn't take a day off really in their lives. Christmas mm-hmm. for them was coming in for a meal, saying, oh, thanks for that present, and just trying to get back out to work kind of thing. Thanksgiving, the same, uh, minus the gifts. But uh, yeah, it, it, uh, I think that also being a wrestler uh, in, in, in my small town from the time I was maybe four years old till I was in high school when I started, started doing plays, uh, it's still a great deal of discipline uh, in me. I guess I saw a lot of hard work around me as I grew up, and maybe uh, that's been beneficial to me as an adult. And now we've got the farmers' protests against the John Deere Farm Manufacturing Company. The farmers have been having a terrible time with that. Was your family affected? No, you know, our, uh, we lost our farm in 1986, the 1,000 acres gone. Yeah, all that was- Taken away by the banks. Yeah. Oh. And any last word to share about Salaryman? Well, um, I would say I hope people see it. I think it's a, it's an important film. It's a really entertaining film. Um, and uh, I'm just so happy to have been a part of it in some way. Uh, it's really thrilling. And anything else you've been up to? Oh yeah, I'd love I'd love to tell you. You know, like I say, I've, I've laid pretty low. I've, I've just you know been a lot of playing guitar and getting out in nature every day and reading great books and drawing and painting. Uh-uh. Uh, uh, and uh, along the way, I did some voice work. I did an audio book for uh, the Chicago Seven story, a companion to the companion piece of the film that came out last year. Um, then quickly, I made a movie with a with a, with a, with a buddy of mine, Brian McGuire. Not a large part, but he's he's made what I call neighborhood movies. He's also on the Cranes scene that I spoke of at the beginning of the of the interview. But uh, he's probably made a dozen movies for no money. And this new film of his is is very epic. It is all on his iPhone, but he shot in L.A. and Chicago, and on Amtrak in between Chicago and L.A., Las Vegas, 
Um, it's mainly his friends and a bunch of family members. It's a crazy, crazy little movie called Rabbit Hole. I think he's finished it and, and looking for festivals. Also, I'm, I'm the male lead uh, by default, I guess, because mm-hmm. a movie called Roving Woman stars an actress named Lena Gora, a Polish actress, and uh, she and a director, Michael Szymilewski, uh, came here to America and improvised a movie uh, in the high desert. Uh, I They asked me to be part of it. I, I, I didn't really want to work, but I offered them some songs, and they... Uh, found one they really loved and kind of made that song a character in the film. And then about a month passed and they sent me uh, a five-minute uh, little piece about what they'd put together and it was so good. I, I, it was, I was screwed. I had to <laughs> go be in the movie because it was really wonderful. And uh, the movie's called Roving Woman. It's mainly improvised, but what's happened, um, they brought it back to Poland an amazing editor to, to help them. And... Uh, so Orion Williams, who is a producer who did uh, Shadow of a Vampire, he did a movie I love called Control, just a beautiful, beautiful film, came on as an executive producer once the movie was finished, and Vim Benders uh, joined him. So this movie, Roving Woman, has a really great um, pedigree now to have Orion Williams and Vim Benders uh, behind it as executive producers. I have not seen the film, but I think it's looking for a really great festival that's called Roving Woman. Okay, thank you so much, John Hawks, for calling into the show. Oh, it's so nice to talk to you, I believe, again. I feel like we've spoken over the years. I appreciate it. It's nice to, uh, to have the time. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Thanks, Corey. Bye. And Salary Man is a production of Legs Linitata. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.